Now keep in mind that uh, Revelation 11, the first half of the chapter, forms the second part of a break between the sixth and seventh trumpets. The seventh trumpet comes in verse 15. So we're going to leave that till next time. So verses 1 to 14 are really closely connected to the previous chapter, but we're going to see they bleed into the seventh trumpet. So we'll see that there's an intimate connection between what's come before and what follows. And then also by way of introduction to the text, we're going to see that there are some things in it a little less clear. I think the major things are rather clear, and perhaps I would even go a step further and say very clear. But then there are details in it that are less clear, I admit. All right, Revelation 11.1. 1. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. And they will tread the holy city underfoot for forty-two months." And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy. Oh, I'm sorry, I read that. Verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, He must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven, so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood, and to strike the earth with all plagues, as often as they desire. Verse 7. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Well, as I mentioned, this passage here is closely connected to that which came before. And in the previous passage, back in chapter 10, if you recall, John was recommissioned to preach a message that was both sweet and bitter. It was sweet because it spoke of the gospel, salvation, forgiveness, acceptance with God. And it was bitter for two reasons. One, because it spoke 
about judgments upon sinners and afflictions upon saints. And we're going to see that both of those are found here in this passage. Judgments upon sinners and sufferings upon saints. And so what we find is really why the word of God that John was to eat at the end of chapter 10 is bitter. That's the subject really of these 14 verses. Now we're going to also find, let me just kind of give you the big picture before we try to dive into the details. Here in Revelation 11, 1 to 14, we find a beautiful description of the church. We're going to see that the temple that's measured is the church. And her faithful witness, i.e. the two witnesses, in the midst of this evil and degenerate world. Okay, so that's really the passage in a nutshell. We find that the church is measured, that means preserved. The church is a faithful witness by the grace of God, as we'll see. She's hated by this great city. This great city is identified as spiritual uh, Egypt and Sodom. By the way, it's the world that killed our beloved Savior. It's just this wicked, godless age. And this wicked, godless age is going to find judgment when Jesus comes back to raise up his beloved church from the ground. That's Revelation 11, 1 to 14. All right, so that's the big picture, but we have to come to some of the particulars. All right, so let me suggest that we find four beautiful things in this text concerning the church. It's really just a grand text about the church. There's four things about the church. Notice first in verses 1 and 2, its identity. And it's described in verses 1 and 2 as a temple. Verse 1, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and, and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. Notice that John is exhorted to measure the temple, the altar, and the people. The temple, the altar, and the people. In other words, this is a beautiful description of the church wherein each of the members are described as priests. And what are they doing? They're worshiping God. Now let me ask you this before we go any further. Doesn't the New Testament and the Old Testament, but doesn't the Old Testament expressly and regularly describe the church as a temple? Furthermore, where on earth is sanctioned worship taking place when John wrote this? Okay, so that, that, ans that answers the question, what temple is John referring to? Because it's only in the church, brother. Where are Christians worshiping when John wrote this? It wasn't some physical temple. John isn't anticipating some future physical temple. He's talking about a temple wherein the sanctioned worship of God takes place. Furthermore, when it says that he's to measure it, by measuring it, he means take note of it so that I might protect it. It's really just another way of saying what we saw previously when Christians were sealed with the name of God on their forehead. Christians are sealed. That is, they're protected. They're numbered. That's another imagery that we saw in previous chapter. And here, the same thing with a different imagery. They are measured. 
It's another way of saying God knows how many stones are in the temple. God knows how many living stones comprise this temple. And this particular temple is made up of people he loves and he knows and he protects and who worship him. Brother, this is a tremendous text to describe what is the church. It's a place of worship. It's the place where God's people worship him. Let me put it like this. It's the only place corporately sanctioned on earth where God's people worship him. All right. So we, I mean, if you just back up, brother, and ask some, I, I think, rather common sense questions and allow the Bible to, to inform our interpretations, the text isn't as complicated as some have made it. Furthermore, if we were to go to the Old Testament and even to the New Testament, later on in Revelation, we find that there's a temple in the Old Testament that's measured. Remember that John is oftentimes leaning upon two, three books of the Old Testament. He's leaning upon Zechariah, Daniel, but oftentimes Ezekiel. And that's exactly what he's thinking here, I think, in his mind. Because both in Ezekiel and Zechariah, there's temples measured. Now, if you go to your mind to Ezekiel 40 to 48, that's that grand text that describes the church in the most glorious of ways. And guess what's going on inside that church of Ezekiel 40 to 48? Worship. And uh, it's measured in the first couple of three chapters, 40 to 43. Furthermore, you find that the city of God, which is the church that comes down from heaven as a bride, adorned and prepared for a groom. That's the church that comes down from heaven. In Revelation 21, guess what? She too's measured. Now then, measuring is just another way of saying knowing. He knows how big. God doesn't have to measure it to know. He knows how many people make up his church. But it's just another way of saying he knows how many people makes, make up his church. All right? And so as I said, it's really, if we don't have the time again, but if we went back and read Ezekiel 40, 41, 42, and 43, we would see most evidently John has that prophecy in mind. All right, so notice very quickly, one, the temple itself was measured, verse 1. And then two, the outer court is not measured, verse 2. Verse 1, the temple itself was measured. And again, what I mean, I think what's meant here is it's known by God. It's it's protected by God. It's sealed by God. Every single Christian, dear brethren, is numbered. He knows how many people comprise his church and he knows how many how many hairs are on their heads he knows every single thing about them all christians furthermore are priests in the temple remember okay just go back in the first um, first chapter i think it's verses four or five it says that jesus has made us what priests and kings unto god priests and kings unto god Everybody in this temple, as we've seen a moment, isn't on the outside where the Gentiles worship, but they're on the inside where only the priests worship. <laughs> Brethren, this temple is not only comprised of real Jews, but Levites, spiritual Levites. We're all priests under God, okay? So the temple is first of all measured. Now you know that connected to the temple, there was a, an outer court, 
And in Jesus' day under Herod, that was divided up into a couple, three sections. But it was originally intended to make room for proselytes, Gentiles who converted to the true religion. And they were allowed to do so as long as they became Jews. As long as they complied with the standards and regulations of God toward his people. And that included worshiping him his way on his days. And yet they worshiped in the outer courts. Here we find that the outer court, in contrast to the temple proper, wasn't measured. Now what would that mean? Well, it's obvious, isn't it, brother? Whatever it means is this. Those aren't Christians out there. Furthermore, we find out that in contrast to being protected, they're being what? Trampled upon. Brother, I mean, really, it's not, again, I hate to keep saying that, but it's not as complex as we make it. You got some who are measured and they're protected. They're worshiping God. There's others who aren't. They're not measured and they're not protected. They're being trampled by God. Revelation 11, 2. But leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it for it has been given to the Gentiles, the world. Now watch the contrast. You have Jews on the inside, true Jews. Remember what we saw in Philippians? Remember we're those who what? Are the true circumcision who worship God in or by the spirit and put no confidence in the flesh. We don't care what we are by nature, Jew or Gentile. We only care what we are by grace and we're not Gentiles. The Gentiles or the world, they're trampling upon the outer court. And I think that means those who profess to be Christians but aren't. They're not worshiping on the inside. They're in the outer court and they're being trampled upon by by the Gentiles for 42 months. I'll come to that in a moment. Perhaps another way of saying it is, John here distinguishes between true and false religion. A true Christian is somebody who's not a Gentile, but is a spiritual priest worshiping God. Where? Inside the temple. And a false Christian, be they... Uh, ever so outwardly and theologically aligned to the true religion, they're outside in the outer court. And they're not worshiping God and they're not protected by God and they're being trampled by the Gentiles. For example, think of this text in this light. Psalm 91. See, this was all known by the Old Testament writers. David and Moses and the other ones who wrote the Psalms a few by Solomon and others, Asaph, they all knew this. And the imagery necessarily implies it. Psalm 91, 1. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. What is that imagery, brethren, but those who are allowed to go into the secret place? That's the most holy place. Let me ask you a question. In Old Covenant religion, under the Old Testament, how many people were privileged to go into the secret place? Only the high priest. And yet here the psalmist is speaking of those who are privy, who have the privilege of going into that. Because he knew that he could do it, not physically, but spiritually. 
He couldn't physically go into the secret place, but he could really go into the secret place as he came to God through the promised Messiah. And so we all are true Jews. We are all spiritual Levites. We're the new priesthood, God's holy priesthood, and we all have access into the secret place. Now watch it. Those in the secret place are what? Protected. They're measured. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. He's safe there. And then the psalm goes on, verse 7, A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Why? Because you are in the secret place of the Almighty. You're numbered. You're sealed. You're measured. Jobiki put it this way. Those in the inner court in the sanctuary who worship God are safe and counted. But those in the outer courts are not counted and are liable to be trampled on by this world, i.e. the Gentiles. Young people coming to church isn't enough, is it? You have to come to God through Christ and find your way at his back into the secret place, into the Holy of Holies. And those who have access through Christ into the Holy of Holies, there they dwell safely. There they shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Brother, who can harm them? The Almighty is protecting them. Now let me just say a few words. It's somewhat difficult to move on from that. It's such a beautiful thought. But let's move to these words for a second. 42 months. It's the same number mentioned in verse 3, 1,260 days. It's the same that's spoken of in chapter 12 and verse 14, a time and times and a half a time. Right? Okay, so 42 months comes out to, if you did the math, 1260 days. So it's obviously, brethren, a figurative way to say it's a limited and preordained time which God has ordained, which takes up the span between the first and second comings of Jesus. We're presently in the 42 months. We're presently in the 1,260 days. We're presently at, uh, right now, in that section that we will find called in 1214, a time and times and a half a time. Now, why does the Bible here utilize three and a half, 42 months, as a time of persecution yet protection. All right, put those together. Persecution, a specific time, predained by God, wherein his people will be persecuted yet protected. Anybody know? Well, let me tell you why. Because if you go back in the Old Testament, where you find in 1 Kings 17, and you find that interpreted for us in the book of James, we find that the prophet Elijah was hated by the world. He and his school of prophets were protected in a cave for how long? 
Three and a half years. And by the way, we're going to find out that just in a few verses later, John is going to go back to that very imagery of Elijah and the prophets protected by the wicked world, the beast, as we're going to see here in a moment, for three and a half years while in the cave. Brother and sister, another way of saying that we're all like Elijah. Now that's, a, that's important because we're going to find that the two witnesses, Elijah and Moses, are representative of the church. We're all like them. We're all like Elijah and Moses. We're the faithful witnesses. And guess what? We have, to, we, have to, we have to occupy and we have to proclaim the truth for 42 months. In other words, it's going to have an end. And God has determined the end. That's the point. Furthermore, God is going to preserve and protect us just like he did Elijah for those 42 months or the 1260 days or the time times and a half a time. I know that may not sound as exciting, perhaps, as some fanciful, unbiblical interpretation, but I'm sure the truth wins out in the, in the end. So it's simply a time betwixt the two comings of Jesus, his first and second comings. It's right now, as we've been seeing, brethren, over and over again. All right, so we've seen the identity of the church. Secondly, it's witnesses, verses 3 to 6. These two witnesses bring together various Old Testament imageries. We've said this already, but let me repeat it. <clears throat> the book of Revelation necessarily builds upon and utilizes Old Testament imagery. And uh, these two um, witnesses, you might know, are borrowed from a couple of sections of the Old Testament. Verse 4, the imagery of the two um, witnesses is borrowed from where? Zechariah 4. And verse 6, the two witnesses, the imagery of the two witnesses is borrowed from a couple Old Testament texts wherein you have Elijah, as I've already made reference to in 1 Kings, and Moses in Exodus. So you have Exodus... First Kings and the prophet Zechariah. All of the John is borrowing from those three. It's obvious that he has in mind, doesn't he? Especially from verse six, Elijah and Moses, the law and the prophets. In other words, this is just another way of saying Christians, God's people. They are kept, they are preserved, as they have to be faithful witnesses for 42 months in a world that hated their Lord and will hate them, as we'll see in a moment. That's trampling upon the outer courts of the temple itself, brethren. Go back to the imagery. Remember, Jesus said he'll build his church or his temple and the gates of hell shall not prevail. The imagery is, is that right outside the door of the church, there's the gates of hell. And that's the imagery of this text, isn't it? The Gentiles are trampling right up into the temple door. But guess what? They shall not enter the temple. Because they're not Christians. And we're safe inside uh, the secret place. As we take refuge in the shadow of his wings. Simply put, by the two witnesses are meant the faithful witness of the church of God in the world. The faithful witness of the church of God in the world for 42 months. 1260 days. A time, times, and a half a time. This 
age from Jesus' first and second comings. William Hendrickson put it this way, the true church is now represented under the symbolism of two witnesses. These witnesses symbolize the church militant bearing testimony through its ministers and missionaries throughout the present dispensation. It's for this reason they're given power to prophesy the same time. Look, they're, they're given uh, power to prophesy the same time that the Gentiles are trampling upon the outer court. In other words, running simultaneous together is persecution and the advancement of the gospel. Put another way, brethren, we always have to remember that there's two realities that run concurrent together in the 42 months or in the 1260 days. There's persecution, there's suffering, and then there's advancement of the gospel and there's victory. Why else do you think that the faithful witnesses are enabled to prophesy for the same amount of time as the Gentiles are allowed to trample upon the outer courts? Because persecution and proclamation are simultaneous, right? Okay. Now, I, another way in which we understand the book of Revelation, we go to the Old Testament. And we look especially at those places where John is, is, uh, is borrowing from in the book of Revelation. Another way in which we do so is we go in further into the book or, or back, but into the book of Revelation itself. And it will help us to understand. A third way is we check William Hendricks. That's really not a third way, but that is a way. But the third way is, in fact, brethren, go to other texts, especially in the New Testament and the Old Testament, like we did with Psalm 91.1, that teach the same thing without the imagery. Okay, stop. Okay, for example, think of this text. It's saying the same thing. Acts 1.8. But you shall receive power. Just stop and think. Okay, in Revelation, in our text of Revelation, we have power. We have the Holy Spirit implied, as we'll see in a moment. We have witnesses for a season throughout the whole world. All that's in Revelation 11. Look at it again, Acts 1.8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Let me put in brackets. For 42 months. Okay, they were witnesses for God. To witness is to testify. They were sent to testify of the word of God. That's true of the apostles in Acts 1.8. And I, I'm thinking here especially of the church represented in the two witnesses in Revelation 11. But also notice they received power from God. Now that's stated expressly, isn't it? In Acts 1.8. And that power comes from where? The Holy Spirit. Right? Well, that's where the power comes from. Uh, with regards to the, to the two witnesses in Acts or in uh, Revelation 11. Look back to verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. <laughs> Take the gospel to the four corners of the world. You're going to be filled with oil from on high. That's what Jesus is telling his disciples in Acts 1.8, wait for the Holy Spirit. And he's going to apologize to be witnesses before me 
to the ends of the earth. Obviously, brethren, these, these two imageries, the olive tree and the lampstands, um, uh, point us to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the oil from on high, the power of the Holy Spirit. This is how they bear witness, brethren. They don't just go forth in their own strength. They don't go forth in their own might. They go forward, how? Filled with oil from on high. That's how Jesus told them in Acts 1 Wait for the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to fill you with oil. And you're going to have grace and power and wisdom and boldness and everything else you need to take the gospel to a world that's going to oppose you. To a world that's going to hate you as it did your Lord. This wicked spiritual Sodom and Egypt. Even this wicked world that killed Jesus. Beal said the oil from the olive trees and the light from the lamp flow through them. Empowering their witness to the unbelieving world. These aren't two mighty men. These are weak men who find their might in another. See, brother, in this text, I mean, doesn't this preach? Doesn't this make you want to endure persecution and, and endure to the end of the 42 months? That's the whole point of the book. And then find, thirdly, it's persecution, verse 7 to 10. These verses graphically describe the world's hatred and persecution of the church. There's no verse, well, there's so many verses in the book of Revelation, but none... None of them more describe the wicked nature of this world than this text. The beast that comes up from the bottomless pit is nothing other than Satan controlling this wicked, evil age. This is made evident from verse 8. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city. Let me stop for a second. Great city in the book of Revelation is always this wicked world. It's Babylon, the great harlot. See how he's switching. It's all, it's all figurative language, brother. He's talking about the temple, but this temple is not, it's not in Jerusalem solely. We are the Jerusalem, but it's in the world. This temple is in the world. This temple in which God's people are preserved and protected and in which they worship God is in the world. It's in the great city. It's not talking about Jerusalem there. By great city, it's meant the world. And notice, John, If in case we don't get it, he identifies the great city with spiritual Sodom and spiritual Egypt. Let me just put it like this. John spiritualized it. John did that. This is spiritual. Look, just in case you you haven't gotten it, I'm speaking in a spiritual sense. Why does he call this world, this great city, why does he call it spiritual Sodom? But because of its immorality, right? Sodom was immoral, brother, and this is what this world is. It's Sodom. When we refer to this world as Sodom, we're referring to it rightly. But it's Egypt. Why? Because it's, a, it's filled with persecution and oppression. That's what Egypt was. Egypt was known for its oppression of God's people. Sodom of its temptation of God's people. 
right? And we're going to see this over and again, irrespective of the form that our enemy takes, a beast, a, a dragon, or whatever. He's going to have two basic ways to seek to destroy God's people by temptation and persecution. And those are found right in the city, Sodom and, and uh, Egypt. Furthermore, if you just did a, um, uh, a check uh, in your concordance, you'd find that the phrase great city is applied to Babylon throughout the rest of the Revelation. For example, 1810, it's called the great city. The world is called the great city of Babylon. Uh, or back up to uh, 17.5. The mother of harlots and the abomination of all the earth. That's the great city. That's the great city. It's, it's this wicked, evil, degenerate age that killed Jesus and hates his people. Because we're going to see they also kill and rejoice in the fact the two witnesses. Having killed the two witnesses, the inhabitants of the city, at the end there, verse uh, 10, or was at the end of the paragraph in my Bible, having killed the two witnesses, the inhabitants of the city, those who dwell on the earth, rejoice and make merry. They're, they're not only hating God and his people, they're persecuting God's people and they rejoice in it. Because, verse 10, these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. What does that mean? Their message offended them. Wow, that's relevant, isn't it? Your message offends me. It torments me. Well, it did in the book of Revelation, chapter 11, too. That's why they kill them, because they want to silence that which torments them. They hate the truth, brethren. Let me say that they hate the truth seen as evidence in our lives, but especially spoken by our words. Our works and words torment them. And that's why they kill them. That's why they kill us. Because of our lifestyle and message. All right, so uh, that's the persecution. And then finally, the victory of the church. Verse 11 to, the, to, to 13. Well, 14. Now these verses describe the resurrection. Very simply, let me give it to you again in big picture. The resurrection and ascension of the two faithful witnesses which symbolized God's people. Simply put, it foretells the bodily resurrection of the entire church at the second coming of Jesus Christ. And that's why when they're resurrected and they go back to God, judgment comes upon the world and that bleeds, as I've already said, into what? The seventh trumpet. And if you look at the seventh trumpet, while it's going to talk about judgment, it's predominantly talking about the victory of the church. Because that's really the main point. It talks about how the 24 elders worship God and they praise him for 17 Following in verse 19 uh, of Revelation 11. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven and the ark of the covenant was seen in his temple. And then there was yet judgments upon the earth. So there's judgment and salvation when Jesus comes back. In other words, they're, they're, 
Their death isn't the, the death of the two witnesses isn't the last chapter. That's the point. Can you imagine? They're, here they are, rejoicing over the fact that they killed them, but alas, eventually there's stirrings in those dead bones. There, I think he's thinking back to what? He, he's thinking of, he's already been thinking of Ezekiel 40 on. What's just prior to Ezekiel 40? Chapter 37 and the dead bones. That's what he's thinking. There's rattling in those dead bones. Those carcasses are right there. They don't even give them a proper burial, brethren. It talks about the disgrace of God's people. Wow, this whole passage, brother, surely could be opened up in great detail, couldn't it? You could just preach the whole Bible from a text like this. Think of, and then remember what I said, in part, we have to get clear texts that help shed light on these texts, okay? So when he, uh, if you go to verse, chapter 11, verse 11, now after the three and a half days, the breath of life came from God. That's just a smaller time within the 42 months. Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life, listen, the breath of life from God entered them. And they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Now, the fear there isn't a fear that leads to salvation. And keep that in mind, because it's akin to the being afraid in verse 13. And so it's not a salvific fear or being afraid. It's carnal. It drives you from God. It's the kind of fear and being afraid that the wicked will have when Jesus comes back, as we'll see in a moment. All right, but the phrase I'm after is verse 12. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud. And their enemies saw them. Ah, brother, this isn't a secret rapture. This is a very visible rapture. This is what happens when Jesus comes back and raises his beloved people from the, from the ground. Everybody will see it. There's nothing secretive about this. Now, let me ask you this question. What text? Well, there's several texts, but there's this one I'm thinking of that, that says, Jesus says, that there's coming a time when his beloved people shall hear his voice and come forth. Well, that's John 5, isn't it? Verse 28, the hour is coming in which all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come forth. Revelation eleven twelve, and they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. Brother, this is a powerful voice. This is the voice of the God man who raises dead bodies from the earth. Now, if you know, Matthew 5, 28, I just read to you, is talking about a bodily future resurrection. Just prior to it, in the previous verses, Jesus said, A time is coming and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear shall live. He's talking about a spiritual resurrection, which is happening right now. Would to God that somebody here who isn't a Christian might hear and live. Hear the word of God. It's like Jesus telling Lazarus to come out of that spiritual tomb. Come to me. That's what Jesus says, right? Here it's, here he's speaking to the bodies because the bodies, their bodies are, are what's left on the ground. Their souls are in heaven. They're one of the 24 elders worshiping God with those creatures, those angelic creatures, brother. They're already in heaven. Again, just stop and think the point of the book. These people had beloved people whose bodies lay where? 
in lion's dens, in places where lions have tore off body parts and there's the carcass of their mother and father and grandmother in the Roman Colosseum. Can you stop and think of that, brethren? They didn't even give them burials. They left them there. And these people are hearing that and they're... And, and, and seeing that, and now they're hearing this. Wait a minute, that, that's not the last chapter. Jesus is going to come back, and when he comes back, guess what he's going to say with a loud voice? Come up here. And those dead bodies will be resurrected from the ground, and they'll come back, and they'll be united to that perfected soul, and they'll be together with the Lord for all eternity in body and soul. Verse 13 describes an earthquake and death in relation to our Savior's return, symbolic for the destruction that will follow. Furthermore, both in Ezekiel and Zechariah, books that's already been referenced by John in this text, we find an earthquake associated with the final judgment. Um, again, if you go back to uh, Ezekiel 38, you have 37. It's all... <laughs> Here's the thing about it, brethren. When the New Testament writer is quoting or alluding to an Old Testament text, he's not just thinking about that text. He's thinking about everything that comes before and after it. John, filled by the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he's not just thinking about Ezekiel 40 and 48. He's thinking about Ezekiel 37 and 38. And guess what happens in 38 when Jesus comes back? He raises everybody up in 37. And then there's an earthquake which judges the world in 38. And then there's heaven on earth, 40 to 48. And John has all that in mind. Boy, would to God that we would just listen and, and, and imitate how the New Testament writers interpreted the Old Testament. Now the response in verse 13, they're very afraid. Remember, that's not evangelical repentance. The, rightly so, the translators in the New King James, I didn't check the ESV, renders it afraid. They were very afraid because it's not an evangelical fear. This isn't their conversion. No, this is that kind of forced confession when they give glory to God. This is that which we saw, was it last week in Philippians 2? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. This is forced confession. In the same hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell and, the earth, and in the earthquake 7,000 people were killed and the rest were afraid and they, and they by force bow the knee and confess that Jesus is Lord. And then the, the seventh angel sounds and everything that happens in verse 15 and following is just an elaboration of what we just saw. Alright, let me summarize everything with some facts. One, these are facts that could be sermons. These are facts that could be series of sermons. Fact one, true worshipers have access to God. True worshipers worship God in the temple, not the outer court. True worshipers are spiritual Levites and priests. Fact two, true <coughs> worshipers <coughs> are counted or measured by God. He knows how many people he has that make up his church. If we had time, we could go to this text. I think it's another text that sheds light on these less clear texts. Second Tim 2.19, nevertheless, 
Okay, nevertheless, if you go to 2 Tim 2.18, or right before there, it talks about these two guys whose names are hard to pronounce, but they're creating all kind of havoc in the church, saying the resurrection has already taken place and people are being led astray, and, and, they're, and, they're, and they're falling away from the truth. There's fake stones in the temple. There's, to, to keep in the, in the imagery of Revelation 11, there's worshipers in the outer court. Nevertheless, 2 Tim 2.19, the solid foundation of God stands firm. That's temple language, by the way. And there was a seal engraved on the Old Testament temple. And there's one engraved on the New Testament temple. And here it is. Having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. Why? He's counted them or he's measured it. In other words, Paul is telling Timothy, man, there's a mess going on in the churches. Be careful, but be encouraged. God knows who's his. True worshipers are counted. Thirdly, true worshipers are witnesses for God. That's what, they're, that's what we're here for, to bear witness of God. Brother, I love to hear about testimony. Watch one recently, a five-minute video I put on Facebook. A young lady who got entrapped in sodomy because she was a from the spiritual Sodom of this world. And the power of the gospel, we, I, I totally skipped over that, but it go, remember the, the, tw- the two witnesses, they're preaching in the power of what? In the power of the Holy Spirit. And when the word of God comes in the power of the Holy Spirit, it changes hearts. And that young Sodomite women, at, woman at the end of the video, you know what she's doing? She's inside the secret place of the Most High God, worshiping God as a spiritual Israelite. And she was a native Sodomite, as we all are, or Egyptian. We're all natively Egyptians and Sodomites. And she's she's testifying with the word and with her works. She's doing what the two witnesses are left to do. Fourthly, True worshipers are hated because of God. Go back to the phrase. This is the same place where they crucified our Lord. Brother, stop and think about it. Jesus said, they hated me, they're going to hate you. Why? Because we torment them. Think of that, brother. We torment them. And obviously, brother, that's not an excuse or license to be rude or crude. Or to be loving and patient and wise and, and gracious. But the world is not going to accept Either our works or words, but they're going to be tormented by them. And we're going to be persecuted as a result. Finally, fifthly, true worshipers will be resurrected by God. All man can do is kill the body, and even that, and leave it right there in the streets. Leave it in the Colosseum, man. Go ahead. You know what? Just stop and think about it, brother. Would to God, if, if we were back then, he'd give us the grace to do this. Like some of the Anabaptists did, whose theology wasn't, had some problems, but let's just say they were the better Anabaptists. Some said they went to the waters to be drowned as if, they, as if they went to a wedding. Because the Catholics and some of the Protestants hated them. And they drowned them. And one man said that the Anabaptists went to the waters to be drowned as if they were going to a wedding, singing and rejoicing. So here we are back in the first century and, and the beast captures us and puts us in the Colosseum. And there's lions tearing apart 
our brethren next to us, ripping off legs and arms. And we would say, I trust, all you can do, oh, you godless, wicked age, is kill the body. And even that one day we'll hear the voice of the Son of God say, come up. And my friends, come up it most certainly will. Well, we have to end there. But we want to transit. Oh, I never got to quote from Beaky's revelation. Well, I just have to leave that for next time. Because we have to move on. And that means we have to stand and sing hymn 268. Now, as we come to 268, you see where it's at? The church. <laughs>